Well, there is a well-known TV streaming sitcom show where there's an office manager who is in some sort of financial trouble, and, and he's advised to declare bankruptcy. And so, in his naivete, he marches to the middle of the office and with a, a bold voice simply says, I declare bankruptcy! And then walks back to his office with a smug grin, and then someone comes in his office and says, you realize, you, you realize this is a whole legal process, right? You, it just doesn't mean you're bankrupt if you just say it out loud, right? Of course, he did not. I mean, think about ourselves spiritually. Can, can we just declare the gospel to be authoritative over our lives, in a sense? Can we just declare our own sins to be forgiven? Can we just declare ourselves, in and of ourselves, that we have been reconciled with God, our Creator? We can't. Forgiveness of sin has to come from God. He's the one that has to declare it. And it has to come in the manner in which He established it through His Son, Jesus Christ. Much like trying to just say out loud that you declare bankruptcy without going through the whole legal process, so is conversion. We need to understand what God has done for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God has spoken through His Word, both the words on the pages of our Bibles, but also through the Word of Christ, His actual person, that we celebrate and anticipate His coming this Advent. God has spoken, God still speaks, and the gospel is that declaration of the Word of God. And Hebrews is going to tell us about that today. If you are visiting with us, which many of you are, thank you so much. Uh, normally, uh, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expositionally, where we are, I seek to expose the meaning of the text, and then hopefully the Holy Spirit does that work of applying that conviction, encouragement, however it falls on our hearts. And we take a break here and there throughout the year, but we're taking a break from our expositional series in Romans to focus on some passages anticipating Christ's coming, otherwise known as Advent. And so we've been looking at portraits of Christ. We looked last week at Christ, the humble king, how the coming of Christ personifies the gospel. This week, we boldly press on with more portraits of Christ as we look at the first chapter and the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, written by an unknown author, fills in many blanks for us about how the new covenant fulfills the old covenant. You really can't understand Hebrews unless you understand the Old Testament law, and you understand how Hebrews then fulfills that, specifically how it says Christ fulfills the Old Testament law. And of course, he is the front and centerpiece of the book of Hebrews. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. The new covenant in Jesus, in his blood. The word of the Lord been proclaimed from start to finish through Jesus Christ. First, through the people of Israel, through their prophets. And let's see how Hebrews puts that. Just look at the first verse for me. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so this is the author of Hebrews. I'm just telling you now, I'm probably going to say Paul like 15 times. I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, though some days I do. So if I do say that, I'm sorry. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. The author of Hebrews starts right out by saying, guys, remember long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He spoke to the forefathers of the nation of Israel, and he spoke to them through the prophets. 
A prophet, as an office and function instituted by God, the prophets were the ones who spoke on God's behalf to God's people with God's message. They brought the word of the Lord to the people. The prophet received a message from God, and they relayed that message to his people. You might remember some of the big dogs of the prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, and many others. Our text tells us that since long ago, you guys remember the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, how the prophets would speak God's message. They literally said, thus saith the Lord. And if what they saith didn't come trueth, they were executedeth. Because if you said that God said something and it didn't happen, that means God didn't say it and that means you're out of a job as a prophet because then it wasn't God who was speaking to you. So it was very, very serious. Even a quick scan through the Old Testament, you would see many places where the text reads things like, and God said, or the Lord spoke to Moses, or Abraham, or Samuel, and the Lord said, and the Lord spoke, and so on. The Lord continued to speak to his people through the prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years. Even before that, the very beginning of everything. In Genesis, we read in Genesis 1-3 that God said, let there be light. God spoke, and it's his word. God is not silent. And so here's our first point. God has always spoken to his people. God has always spoken to his people. Let that sink in. Always, from the very beginning when he spoke the world into existence through the entirety of the Old Testament, even in the four centuries between the Testaments, God continued to speak through his law when there were no more prophets. Most of our Bibles, of course, three quarters of our Bibles are the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, we learn many things. But I want to highlight three big buckets of what we learn when we hear God speaking in the Old Testament. We learn who God is, we learn who we are, and we learn how we are supposed to relate to this God. First, when God speaks, particularly in the Old Testament, we learn who God is. The very first thing we learn about God is what? He's our creator. He spoke the world into existence. And so we, the very first thing we learn in the Old Testament about God himself is he's our creator. If we skip that part, we get so much more wrong. We can't just blow by God being our creator because as our creator, then what? Then he's our king. Then he's our owner, so to speak. He is in control of every single thing of his creation sovereignly. He has authority. If we don't understand this about God, we won't understand the rest of the Bible for sure. As God is the creator of all we see and even what we, what things that we don't see, we realize again that he's our authority, he's our king. He's different than us. He is apart from us. He is distinct from us. As theologian Van Til put it, there's a distinction between creature and creator. We are not the same thing. This is not pantheism, where God exists in creation. We don't worship rocks and the sun and other things as God. Creation is completely separate from the creator. We, on the other hand, then, when we look at ourselves, we learn the second thing. We learn about ourselves. We are not God. We are not eternal. We are not sinless. We are finite, limited individuals. He is infinite. He is eternal. We are sinful. He is sinless. 
And so when we, we get a view of who God is, of course, then we see our sin immediately. However, as human beings, we're the crowning achievement of his creation. We're the highest form of his creation. We are made in his image, so every human life, from the preborn human to the one who is a slave in a country that everybody has forgotten about, to the hundred-year-old grandfather, has intrinsic value. Why? Because they're human beings made in his image. And so we can't think of ourselves too much as worms because we are the highest creature that he has created because no one else is made in his image. We are instinctively knowing that we're created for more. And we instinctively all know that we fall short of that. We're created to be in his image and we fall short of the ways that we walk that out. And that's, of course, sin. And worse yet, through our rejection of God as creator, we are objects of his wrath. We are worthy of punishment, as Piero said. And worst of all, we're unable to resolve this situation ourselves. This presents the ultimate human dilemma. If we are unable to reconcile our separation with our creator, who can? That brings us to the third aspect of it. We learn about God. We also learn about ourselves. But we also learn how we're supposed to relate to this God. We need someone to be in the middle. We need a mediator. We need someone to reconcile the relationship, and we can't do that ourselves because our hands are already stained with sin. God spoke through the laws of the Old Testament to show us that sin is a big deal. Without the shedding of blood, he says, there is no forgiveness of sin. That's why we saw animal sacrifices all along, all pointing as a copy and a shadow of what will be the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ, his son. And that's where the author of Hebrews goes next. Look at Hebrews again. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let's just stop there. You see that contrast? He says, long ago it was the prophets, but in these last days, he speaks to us not through the prophets, he speaks to us through his son. Note that our text says that we are in the last days. And so another reminder that we should not get swept up into end times madness with any of this. Not the false teacher saying that we are living at warp speed and biblical prophecies being fulfilled before our eyes. Just look at Gog and Magog and Israel and no, no. The last days started when Jesus ascended to heaven. And we are living in them now. And he says, in these last days, God has spoken to his people in a new and better way. Christ, the fulfillment of the old covenant. And later on, Hebrews has much to say about this great fulfillment of it. And of course, it all centers on the person and the work of his son. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 say, Now at the point... In which, uh, now, the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's where he ends in uh, verse 3 of our passage today, by the way. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. But since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law... They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better 
because it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We see the author of Hebrews saying, Christ is the fulfillment of the old covenant and the new covenant in Christ is better than the old covenant. Why? Because it's based on better promises. Christ himself, no longer the law. The old covenant, the old covenant law, a copy and a shadow of what we've come to know in Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, this is the new way of how God speaks to his people through Jesus. This is why Jesus is called, among many other things, the Word, the Word of God. John 1.1, we looked at last week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the very end of the story, in the book of Revelation, we see he will return, clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And so we see Jesus inextricably linked to the Word of God. This is the way that God speaks to His people in the New Covenant. Jesus, the Word, linked with the Word of God that we see as our Bible. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Old Testament prophets predicted His coming. The New Testament, the, the Gospels were the account of His coming. And then the accounts of the early church of Jesus. And then, of course, the anticipation of the return of Jesus. It's all centered around Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the Bible. Even the resurrected Jesus said that himself, that all of God's word is about himself. We see the conversation on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. In verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus says, all of the scripture points to me. All of the Old Testament points to me. And the, he, the book of Hebrews says that then this is the new way that, that God speaks to his people through his son. Therefore, the very word of God that we hold in our hands, that we have all around us, it is literally God's creative breath pointing to God's Son. Second Timothy famously tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. If it's breathed out by God, it carries God's authority. Elsewhere in Hebrews, we see a powerful statement of the word of God based on Jesus Christ in Hebrews 4. Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. What's the point of all this? God continues to speak to his people today. God has always spoken to his people. And second point, God continues to speak to his people today. Why? Jesus said himself, all the prophets spoke about me. And Hebrews says, this is the way the new covenant church hears. He is the word. That is why in our text in Hebrews, what it's actually telling us is now in the last days, those prophets are no longer necessary because Jesus is here. All scripture is about me. All scripture is about his son. We don't need someone to say, thus saith the Lord anymore. Why not? Because he saith it already. It's here. We have it. I was watching YouTube the other day, and there's a, a, a prophecy roundup, and one guy took all the prophecies that they made at the beginning, because 
false prophets tend to make a lot of, pay attention, in January, December, they're going to make all these prophecies about the year. This is the year of the renewal, or this is the year of whatever, and very specific prophecies. And he went one by one and kind of looked at each one, and most of them failed. And it's like, okay, well, what does that mean? I guess that wasn't a word from the Lord. We don't need a prophet saying this is the Lord because we don't need anything other than what we have here. This is God's sufficient, authoritative word. Why? Because it's based on Jesus, and the work that Jesus did is done, and it's complete. And so anytime anybody says to you, the Lord said, please tell them to follow that up with a reference from the Bible. We have impressions. We can have leading, sure, by the Holy Spirit. But we, as people, should be very, very cautious, if ever, saying the Lord said, unless we are grounding it in what he has already said. Second Peter tells us why this is, because the Bible was not written by men, but men written through the Holy Spirit. First Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, knowing that, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So when these self-proclaimed YouTube false prophets say that God told them something or they received a message from the Lord, it's usually nonsense. We all have a message from the Lord. It's right here. We have to remember that and stand on that. Yet, biblical illiteracy is one of the biggest problems in the church today. Not necessarily Highlands Bible Church, the church at large. Many Christians have not read the whole Bible. If that's you, take this as your annual nudge from Pastor Mike that 2024 is your year. Read the whole Bible in 2024. I soon will have those lovely little five-day reading plans out on the back table. Read the whole Bible this year. In church, we need to know the Bible. We need to read the whole Bible. We need to meditate on it. We need to soak in it. We need to let it inform our lives. It is literally God's Word speaking to you. At the risk of oversimplifying this, pretend God sent you an email or a text. Would you, how long would you let that go unread? Probably not very long, right? We all have those text messages or those emails that we're expecting that we can't wait to get, whether if it's about an offer of a job or a house or whether it's someone that you're very interested in, finally text you back. You're not going to let that sit in your inbox, right? And so, yeah, the oversimplification is obvious, but if God speaks to you, why would you not read it? Why would you not would God The creator king of the world says to you, why would you not read all of it? Why is the word of God any less important? Many of us are are seeking God's direction for next steps in our lives or next steps in ministry, or many of us are in a difficult situation. I talked about that a couple weeks ago where we're just in this kind of season of serving others. How much more time do we need to spend with God then? If you're looking for God's direction, how much time are you spending with God to get said direction? If you're looking for direction or you're in a season where you need to hear from him, he has spoken. Hear from him. Whatever you're doing, double it, triple it. Spend more time in God's word, listening for his voice. There are plenty of opportunities here to study the word at Highlands. Men, I want that loft packed on Wednesday nights. 
I want the diner on Wednesday mornings not able to sit, seat any other customers except us. And we tip really good, so they should be fine with that. Ladies, I want you to make Josh Bennett put an addition on his house on Friday mornings. Sorry, Josh. On Friday mornings, because they can't fit all of the ladies that they're in there. And Tuesday mornings, ladies, let's pack out the downstairs. God is still speaking to his people today. The question is, how closely are we listening? That's the question. Because his message is critical, especially for us in this Advent season, as we anticipate the coming of Christ Let's look at verse 3, our final part. I'll just read the whole thing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you've been wondering when we're going to get to the actual portrait of Christ, here it is. God has always spoken to his people. He continues to speak to us today. And what is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And he's talking about the nature of Jesus and particularly the coming of Christ. And once again, we have this question, who is this Christ? What does this portrait of Christ look like that we are looking at? Our text in Hebrews gives us seven of them. First, Hebrews declares that Jesus was appointed to be the heir of all things. What is an heir? Is someone who inherits something. In this case, King Jesus inherits all things. There's nothing that King Jesus does not have. Romans 11.36 tells us, From him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be the glory forever. And so first it says he's the heir of all things. Second, Hebrews says that through Jesus, God created the world. We don't think of this theological truth so much. But Jesus was the agent of creation, that God created the world. We were in John. I know, I get excited about it too. We were in John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Watch this. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Yet another affirmation of the deity of Christ. That's God-level stuff, creating things. And so Hebrews gives us that other portrait of Jesus, that he was the creator of the world along with the Father. Along with those lines, Hebrews tells us two more portraits of Christ. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father. And Jesus glorifies the Father with his perfect obedience, his perfect love, his perfect grace, his perfect wrath, his perfect sacrifice. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father in John 10, 30, Jesus declares himself, I and the Father are one. Fifth, Hebrews tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Interesting here how the author of Hebrews goes back to the word. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, and he's upholding that with his word, with his command. Everything that is going on in the world, he is approving it. He is sovereign over it. We talk about that a lot here at Highlands. Nothing escapes his notice, his permission, 
or his purpose. God created it with a word, and he sustains it with a word. And why is all this the case? Because of what Jesus did. Hebrews tells us the last two portraits of Christ in verse 3 at the end. He made purifications for sins because he had the sinless life, and he sacrificed himself on the cross in our place, and he was victoriously resurrected. But after he made purification for sins, what happened? He ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The sitting down part is actually very important. It shows that the work's done, that the work is complete. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So what's the point of all that? God is the one that pronounces us forgiven in Christ. God pronounces us forgiven in Christ. One of my favorite parts about officiating weddings is the last part, right, after the kiss. I thought it was before the kiss, but I guess it should be after the kiss, right, where I get to pronounce them husband and wife in the sight of God, and I introduce them for the first time in public. It's so much fun. Everybody claps and goes crazy, right? All of these seven portraits of Christ in this last section say that God puts all that together and Jesus then ascends after his resurrection, after his death. He is received in glory and guess what? He sits down because the work's done. He sits down at the right hand of God the Father. And God the Father then looks at us through faith in him and pronounces us forgiven. Think of him doing so from his glorious throne where he looks at Jesus at his right hand and Jesus agrees, yes, Father, that one is mine. He repented, he believed, she repented, she believed, she is mine. Therefore, they are forgiven. Therefore, they are reconciled to you. Maybe there are some in here today who need to be reminded of this simple truth. If you have trusted in Christ's sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins, you are in fact forgiven, whether you feel it or not. It is a legal declaration from the throne of God that says, I have forgiven you based upon the work of my son who is sitting next to me because it is complete. God is the only one who can forgive sin, or as Hebrews puts it, make purification for sin. Such a beautiful way of saying it, isn't it? Your sin has been purified. We've been purified of our sin, our uncleanliness through faith in Christ. That should well up in us in a joy that goes through anything. Matthew Henry put it this way, We never can be thankful enough that God has in so many ways and with such increasing clearness spoken to us falling sinners, fallen sinners concerning salvation. That he should by himself cleanse us from our sins is a wonder of love beyond our utmost powers of admiration, gratitude, and praise. It's a very Puritan way of saying this should blow your mind. When we think about the fact that we have been forgiven of our sins, that in the throne room of God himself, it goes out and says, yes, you are clean, you are forgiven, that should blow our minds. And we should be ever the more joyful about that. And as we pause and reflect on all things Christmas this year, Advent, of all the blessings that we enjoy, of all the family, of all the food, of all the presents, and all the things that we tend to take stock of, church, take joy the most in the fact that in the throne room of heaven, 
if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Take joy the most that he has declared you forgiven. From his throne, based upon the work of Christ, seated at his right hand. And as we ponder the coming of Christ this Christmas, in this Advent, we stop and think, he came on a mission. The mission was the glory of God and the redemption of sinners, the people of God. And on that mission he completed, he completed it perfectly, and it is perfectly complete. It is over. He has sat down. All of this screams the glory of God and the mission of Christ, what we refer to as the gospel, the gospel itself. The high point, the mountaintop, the climax, the bullseye of all scripture is the gospel. If Christ didn't come down to earth, the gospel doesn't happen. If Christ didn't perform the work perfectly, the gospel doesn't happen. If Christ was never resurrected and ascended back to the Father, if Christ never sat down because the Lord accepted his work, the gospel doesn't happen. But because it did, because it did, church, because Hebrews chapter 1 says and reminds us that it did, therefore there is a declaration from heaven. He continues to speak, he proclaims, Christ proclaims, declares the gospel because of who he is and what he did. The physical coming of Jesus Christ to earth on the mission of the gospel, it's a declaration that the gospel is real. In our series in the portraits of Christ relating to the coming of Christ, week one we said that Christ's coming initiates the gospel. Week two we said that Christ's coming personifies the gospel. And now in week three, I'll tell you this. Christ's coming declares the gospel. Christ's coming declares the gospel. But it's not an empty declaration. It's not like standing up in the middle of a room and declaring bankruptcy with nothing to back it up. No, we actually have Christ who actually did come. He actually did the work perfectly. He was resurrected. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now. And because of that, that's the declaration a declaration that's backed up by the facts of who Jesus Christ is. The gospel would be empty words were it not for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate this Advent. We see this declaration at the angelic celebration at the birth of Christ where the angels gather together and say, glory to God in the highest. But then look at what they declare. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. How can he be pleased with us? Only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so first, we have to be transformed from his enemy to his child, and that only comes through repentance and belief. Then from the right hand of God, the declaration then goes out. The moment that we trust in Christ as our Savior, the moment that we realize our sin has been nailed to his cross, in that moment, that declaration goes out from heaven and says, forgiven and says the gospel's true. We are a child of God. We are no longer an enemy of God. We are his child. Why? Because of Christ. Because of what he did. God has always spoken to his people. He continues to speak to his people today, and he speaks to the truth of those who have faith in Christ that we are pronounced forgiven. And Christ is sitting down. We don't often think about that, do we? The fact that Christ is sitting down. There's literally nothing else for him to do to secure the redemption and the forgiveness of his people. He did it all. He's sitting down and he's ruling and he's reigning from his throne. He's sitting down until one day when he gets up again. 
and he will return to earth and he will banish sin and sickness and evil and suffering forever. He's sitting down until he gets up to return again. One day, the word of God will return and all things, including death, will be put under his feet and the world will know his peace. And we will all say once again that Christ's coming declares that gospel. Father, we are so thankful for this season. We are so thankful for the realities that we read in your word of the work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we cannot ourselves declare anything. We cannot ourselves just say, I really would like to be reconciled to you, Lord, just on the basis of my good deeds or on the basis of my family or on the basis of who I am. No, none of that matters. You are the one and the only one who can declare us forgiven. And the only reason that you could do that is because your son Jesus came as a human baby and grew. Lord, he knows what it's like to be human. And in the mystery of the two persons of Christ, your son, he also is divine. He did the work that no human could do, but representing us as a human, went to the cross for our sins. And Lord, the moment that we turn from ourselves the moment that we we take ourselves off of the throne and put you as the rightful king of our lives, the moment that we repent of our sins and trust in you, that declaration goes out based on the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we are in fact forgiven. And we are reminded that the coming of Christ was so much more than just the traditional Christmas trappings that we see in our culture. The advent of the Christ declares the gospel. And it's in his precious name that we cling to this and we pray. Amen.